Okay, um, I'm going to ask you to do two things at this point. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, and um, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. So four Gospels, and then the book of Acts. And then also what I'd like you to do is, um, when the time comes, to draw your attention to the screen above my head. We're going to confess as we continue through our catechetical series. We've been looking at uh, baptism some weeks ago. We started that, and now we're going to look specifically at the matter of what we call, and a practice that we practice here at the church, uh, infant baptism, or as I will use the term, covenant baptism. All right, so I'm going to read um, the scripture first, and then we are going to confess together uh, Q&A 74 of our, of our catechism, all right? So um, I'm going to read from Acts 2. I'm going to begin reading at verse 22, and uh, this is all in the context of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit who empowers the apostle Peter to preach a sermon to men who are gathered from the Mediterranean region. These are Jewish men who uh, have gathered together to Feast of Pentecost, a Jewish festival. So Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. Let's listen to this very powerful sermon. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. So what Peter is doing, remember he's speaking to Jewish men here, he's making a tie between David and David's greater son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and he references a psalm where David implies the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This Jesus God raised up of all we are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, the Spirit, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So again, Peter is preaching the death the resurrection, and the ascension of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, I want you to pay special attention to verses 37 to 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Now you imagine that. That's a pastor's dream, to preach one sermon and have 3,000 people converted. But it shows you the empowering work and the filling of the Holy Spirit in the lives of individuals, bringing them to a point of repentance and faith. Now, um, I want to draw your attention to Q&A 74. Um, we preface this over the last few weeks regarding dealing with the matter of baptism. Now we're dealing specifically with the baptism of infants. So, should infants too be baptized? And let's confess these words together. Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant and congregation. Through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised to them no less than to adults. Therefore, by baptism as sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the old covenant by circumcision, in place of which baptism was instituted in the new covenant. All right. Now think about what you just confessed. And... The question, and I'm not expecting a verbal answer from you right now, but the question is this. Did you actually believe what you spoke? Did you actually believe what you confessed? And maybe for a number of you, I, I don't know, or maybe some of you, maybe none at all. I don't know. But maybe you confess these words. You say, well, you know what? I, I, think, I think that I believe those words, but I'm not exactly sure why. Or I'm not exactly feeling able to articulate, explain, defend, or like promote these words. Um, this, is, this is something that I oftentimes um, find with very fine Christians, that when it comes to this matter of, and I'm not going to use the term infant baptism, I like the term covenant baptism, because the baptism of infants is rooted in our understanding of the covenant and a covenantal framework for the Bible. In fact, I don't think you can really understand the Bible without a covenantal framework or without a kingdom framework for that matter. Anyway, so that's, that's what undergirds this. But I think, I think for, for a lot of us, this is, this is an issue of interest to us and it is... Uh, at times for us, a, a, a problematic issue because we, we kind of wrestle with the words and, and, and a proper understanding of them. The Bible's teaching on, on covenant baptism. So um, before we get into Acts chapter 2, and there, there's so much that could be said about this matter. I mean, we could do a number of sermons on, on covenant baptism. But I want to I begin by um, noting three things about this whole issue of covenant baptism. Just kind of um, provide the the, the the context of what we're looking at here this afternoon. First of all, this whole matter of covenant baptism, and, and some of what I'm about to explain to you right now is based on a number of years within the ministry, on the, in the pastoral ministry. First of all, um, this, this issue of covenant baptism is a very passionate issue for a lot of people. Now, I, I find that 
if, if people are a part of a church or a part of a denomination or a federation where they don't have much interaction with other Christians outside their circles, then it's not usually all that much of a passionate issue. Oftentimes, it's just simply an embrace of the teaching, although they may not be able to explain exactly all the intricacies of this matter, but still, they usually don't have much of an issue with it. But if you're the kind of Christian that uh, interacts with those outside of your tradition, in our case, it's what's called the Reformed tradition, then um, you will find that you will, you will oftentimes interact with these wonder, many times wonderful brothers and sisters over this issue of covenant baptism because there are many in this world, evangelical believers say, you know what, I, 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 don't, I don't really believe in this and, and, they, and they get very defensive sometimes about it. And, and I'll tell you why, because because the matter before us, covenant baptism, is not just a biblical issue, and it's not just a theological issue, and a rational issue where you have to use re human reason or to, to, to demonstrate a point and to defend and promote your position on this. But it's, it's, it's extremely, as I said, it's, it's a passionate issue, it's an emotional issue. And um, I, I find this not only among women, but I find this also among men. I remember when I was pastoring, uh, doing church planning work in Springfield, Missouri, there was a wonderful uh, gentleman who was very influential in uh, bringing us there. And he grew up in a background that did not practice covenant baptism. In fact, he grew up in the kind of church where he was told over and over again that, that it was not biblical to baptize infants or small children, at least who could not believe and he said, um, eventually he transitioned to a covenant baptism position. But before he did that, he said, when, when I went to uh, another church that I didn't normally go to, and I actually witnessed an infant baptism, he says, I almost threw up. I mean, it was that, it was that ingrained in him. This was wrong. This was wrong. This is wrong. So it's a very passionate issue. That's the first thing. Um, the, 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 the second thing is, as I alluded to earlier, for a lot of people, it's a perplexing issue. Right? It's a perplexing issue. Um, and maybe it is for you as well. I'm, I'm wondering, I'm not going to do this, but I'm, I'm wondering if I would choose just five of you, you know, you and you and you and you, would you come up um, to, as I sometimes will say here, to a standing mic, and would you please explain to us all um, your rationale for the acceptance of covenant baptism? Explain biblically why you believe it to be true. I think a lot of us, quite frankly, would be rather embarrassed to do that because we would just have a hard time articulating that all, um, and, you know, our position on that. And it's not to say that we um, aren't faithful church members and doesn't believe that we're not repentant believers in Jesus Christ, but we just find this issue difficult. And I'm going to ask you this question, why do you find it difficult? Why do you find it difficult? Why do many of us find it difficult? This is what I find in the ministry time and time again. And the, 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 the reason I think many of us find it difficult is because when we're dealing with uh, individuals who did not grow up with us or do not believe it, for them the matter is rather simple. And they, they, they simply go to the New Testament and they say, well, it's very easy when Jesus gives the great mission commission. He says to those who receive the gospel, um, repent, believe, and be baptized. So belief, faith, precedes actually the sacrament of baptism of those who actually believe. And so they basically say, listen, infants or small children are incapable of expressing their faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're excluded from baptism. You know, what do we do with that? 
And for a lot of us, the difficulty is found in this. And, and I'll be very upfront with you about this. You cannot explain the matter of covenant baptism in a soundbite. It's not just as simple as repent, believe, be baptized, the matter is settled, infants can't do that, therefore they shouldn't be baptized, done. The issue of covenant baptism is much more complex than that. It requires a tying together of various texts and understanding not just the New Testament but the Old Testament and understanding issues like the covenant and the kingdom and actually how we should be considering our children. All those things play into an, a proper explanation of covenant baptism. And what's very, very interesting, and I'll get to the third point, but I, but I want to say this because I think this is very, very important. There, there are many times where um, I have had it in the ministry, and I remember one uh, particular instance where I was um, pastoring a young couple who were getting married, and he was from what we call a Reformed background, which practices what we call pedo-baptism, that's the baptism of children and infants, and then the girl that he was going to marry came from what we call not a pedo-baptist background, but a credo-baptist background, that is, she believed because she came from a Baptist church that you first have to believe and then be baptized. And so they were kind of like this. And when I, when I pastor young couples, I will oftentimes say, and I don't know if you're going to agree with this or not, but I, I say to the couple very pastorally but pretty firmly, you guys, before you get married, you need to figure this out. You need to figure what the Bible says about this. You need to gauge others. And before you go into the marriage bond, you need to be tied together regarding the matter of either a credo or a pedo-baptism position. But I went and I explained basically a position on, on covenant baptism. It probably took me at the shortest, you know, about 10 to 12 minutes. And I could tell after about 60 seconds, the young girl checked out. Because it was just too complex for her. It was a tying in of various texts. And she, it, was, it was like, she didn't say it, but it was almost you can read it in her eyes. It was like, well, if, it's, if it's, that's convoluted, if you, have to, if you spend all this time, and if the matter is so complex, can it really be true? Can your position even be valid? And I get it. Nonetheless, it is a somewhat complex issue. It can be understood, but it's more complex than what people realize. And then finally this, and I'll be really brief with this, oftentimes this issue is handled rather polemically. And what I mean by that is whether it's a pastor or a teacher or two Christians who are somewhat biblically, theologically adept, when they get into it, oftentimes there's a marshalling in of various texts and chapters of the Bible and tying in of these various texts, and they can go at it for a long period of time. But if you follow just a polemical approach where you're just trying to prove a point, it can oftentimes leave people rather dry and unfulfilled. And this is why when dealing with the matter of covenant baptism, particularly the baptism of children, we need to handle it what we also call not just biblically and theologically, but also pastorally. We need to handle it gently, and we need to handle it in a winsome way because it is indeed a great blessing to have our children receive the sign of the covenant and grow up in time to profess their faith in Jesus Christ. So, with that having been said, um, I want to draw your attention to our passage here um, uh, this afternoon. It comes from Acts chapter 2. And as I said earlier, um, Peter is preaching a very powerful sermon that convicts a number of individuals. Okay? And so the background is this. You know that Jesus had a three-year ministry, and toward the end of his life, Jesus was crucified, he died, was buried, and three days later, he rose from the dead. 
40 days after that, Jesus ascended into heaven, and 10 days after that, Jesus poured forth his spirit. Now, the pouring forth of the Holy Spirit was indicated throughout the Old Testament in the places like Isaiah and also Ezekiel 36 and 37, where the Lord prophesied that in time the Spirit would come and it would cleanse the hearts of God's people and draw them again to themselves. Um, also Joel chapter 2, the spirit will be poured out and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. They will speak the word of the Lord. Well, it's the spirit now in fulfillment of all this Old Testament material and these predictions now comes upon the church, the beginning of Acts chapter 2. And it's this spirit who works within us to give us the gift of faith, to draw us to Jesus Christ, to remain in Christ, to be sealed by that spirit so we will always walk with Christ so that in time we receive our eternal reward. So not enough can be said about the person and the work and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Well, when the Spirit is poured out upon the church, it is the Spirit who also empowers believers in Jesus Christ to bring the word of Christ to the world around them. And it is this very Spirit that descends upon Peter, fills Peter, and the very Peter who once denied Jesus three times, is now filled with the Spirit, and he's given a spirit of boldness. He's given a spirit of courage, and he begins to preach. And so Peter preaches, and he preaches, as I noted earlier as we read this together, about the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus Christ. So much is said, but the point is, Peter preaches with such fervency and with such accuracy that the Spirit combines with that word, and now what happens is these men are convicted, and they cry out to Peter and the apostles, what must we do to be saved? You, what do you mean by that? Well, what, do you, what must we do to be saved from our sin? What must we be, do to be saved from ourselves and to be reconciled to Jesus Christ, our Messiah who came for us? And then Peter speaks these words, and they're very important words. Peter says, well, if you want to be saved, repent and be baptized, each and every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on to say, for this promise, the promise of what? The promise of the Holy Spirit and the promise of the forgiveness of sins. The promise is not only for you who are here and listening to me, but this promise is also for your children. This is very significant. Not just for you, but also for your children and then also this promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit is also for all those whom, as the gospel goes out, whom God, through that gospel, calls to himself, who are converted and brought in. So you have three parties here. The gospel goes out. It is received by these men. They respond to the promise of, for, of forgiveness and the work, the gift of the Holy Spirit. But Peter goes on to say, you who have responded to this promise of forgiveness and the Holy Spirit, that promise is also for your kids, for your children, and all whom the Lord across the world will draw to himself through the preaching of the gospel. Those three parties. Now, I want us to pause here just a little bit and ask ourselves the question, who's the Peter preaching to? And that requires us to kind of leave the time in which we are living in the 21st century, in this place, in Abbotsford, and it requires us to go back in time about 2,000 years. And actually 
enter into the minds and the hearts of these men who are listening. And who are these men who are listening? Who are they? Well, um, I don't think that we have uh, the passages here before us. Um, just leave that up there. If you've got your Bible, you've got your device, I want to answer that question. Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and he addressed them and he said, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. So who does he refer? Or uh, who are these men? Um, how are they referred? They are, they are seen as those who are men of Judea. They're referred to by that designation. Then, verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Then verse 36 of Acts chapter 2, let all the house of Israel know. So what we have here is these are not non-Jewish individuals. These are Jews. And there are hundreds of these men, these Jewish men who are listening here. So that when Peter speaks to them and he preaches them and he calls them to repentance and he calls them to faith and to be baptized and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when he says, the promise of these things, which you embrace by faith now, is not just for you, but also for your children and also those whom the Lord God will call from afar. These men understood intuitively that the language that Peter was using was the language of covenant. He's mentioned these things, and he's talking about the promises, the promises of the gospel, the promises of the, gov uh, the, of, of the covenant. And these men, they grew up for 2,000 years with an understanding that those who are included in the covenant and who receive the promises of the covenant, the promise of the Spirit, the promise of the Messiah, the promise of the gifting of the Holy Spirit, that for 2,000 years, that was not only for adults, but those promises also were for their children. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here. Actually, if you want to understand Acts chapter 2 and the relationship to covenant baptism, you have to root the language of Peter in Acts chapter 2, Peter himself a Jew, you have to root it back in Genesis chapter 17. So, A.V., if you put Genesis 17 up there, and I want to draw your attention now. If you have your Bibles with you, take a look at Genesis chapter 17. Otherwise, you can look at the uh, overhead. And the reason why I'm doing this is I'm, I'm going to submit to you that you cannot understand Peter's sermon as a Jew speaking to Jewish men without understanding the Jewish understanding of the covenant. And when these men heard this, even though it's not explicitly stated, you can guarantee as Jews are thinking about Father Abraham and covenantal language of Genesis chapter 17. Let's begin reading at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and he said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. So God is addressing Abram here. Now let me provide a little bit of the context here. God initially entered into covenant in Genesis chapter 15. Abraham did not live in a believing household or what we call a covenant household. What he did is he grew up in an unbelieving family. His father was terror, worshipped idols. But God entered into covenant with Abraham. Abraham was not looking for the Lord, but the Lord went looking for him. And he enters into covenant with Abraham. What does that mean? It means he enters into, a, in a sense, a, a marriage bond, a bond of friendship and love with Abraham. And it's called a covenant of grace. 
And the reason for that is because God was not obligated to do that with Abraham, and Abraham was not even looking for God at that moment, but God simply chose to do so. It was a beautiful thing that the Lord did. Genesis chapter 15, the Lord confirms that covenant with Abraham, and in Genesis 17, God does that again. He reaffirms that covenant, but that too, not only with Abraham, but he affirms that covenant relationship with Abraham's children and children's children on down the line. That's why we call it an everlasting covenant, okay? Now, back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, meaning exalted father, but your name shall be called Abraham, that is, father of a multitude. Now, God says, Abraham, you're, you're now called the father of a multitude. Like, well, why? Well, because Abraham is going to be the father of many, many people. As the Bible says, as many as the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky. Now, that's quite something what the Lord is promising Abraham and those descendants as a father of a multitude because Abraham and Sarah don't have kids at this point. Abraham's 99 years old. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews, he's about as good as dead. His wife Sarah's about as good as dead as well. So this is quite something the Lord is promising Abraham. He says, no longer will your name be called Abraham, your name will be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. And we go, really? I'll make you a father of a multitude of nations when you're old and good as dead and you don't have any kids yet? The Lord says, yeah, that's my promise to you. You'll be father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings will come forth from you. And then verse 7. And I will establish my covenant, now notice this, between me and you, but not just me and you, Abraham, but also your offspring, your children after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you, but also to your kids and future generations. Now this is important for us to understand because in an individualistic age, where it's just focused on me and my personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The focus of the Bible is, yes, on the need for a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but also a relationship of families with Jesus Christ, including the children. He says, I'm going to be a God to you and your offspring after you, and I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, your travels, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be your God. No, he says, I'm going to be their God. Not just your God, but also their God. The gods, and God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. So force the Lord, what he does is he, give, he gives Abraham the promises of the covenant. Now we see the obligations or the responsibility of this marital bond that God has with Abraham and his children. What are those obligations? You and your offspring after you throughout their generations shall keep my covenant covenant in other words you shall obey you shall serve you shall believe this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you but notice also your offspring after you and then what the lord does is he gives a sign of this covenant relationship he says every male among you shall be circumcised you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and and you, and we could say also your children after you, because your children are going to receive the sign of the covenant, that is circumcision. I'm going to point to, or I'm going to explain a little bit, the, the meaning, the basic meaning of circumcision, but it's a sign. And, and, and basically, basically, 
when that, when that, let me try to put this uh, delicately, but when, when the foreskin is cut off from the male reproductive organ, that was a very significant thing um, that was done. One of the things, one of the things that that proves is that when individuals, when that individual could see that he was a circumcised child, that was a pointer to the fact that he, he was in covenant with the Lord. He was not covenant with any other pagan gods. He was not in a relationship with any other pagan religions, but the Lord was his Lord. It was a sign of that very thing, that he's in covenant with God. Verse 12, drawing to a close. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or brought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is brought, bought with your money, you'd say and brought into the house, shall surely be circumcised. You shall be my covenant. This shall be so shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, who has not received the sign of the covenant willfully, right, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, God commanded Abraham to circumcise his children. What did that circumcision point to? It pointed to the fact that when those little boys were circumcised, they were different than the uncircumcised Philistines around them. It told them that they were in covenant with God and that they were under the promises of the covenant and it also told them they were under the obligations of the covenant. Circumcision also pointed to the need for the greatest descendant of Abraham to come, the Messiah. And what did the Messiah do? The Messiah was needed in order to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins that people might be reconciled to God. So when the skin of the male productive organ was cut, the blood was shed, reminding the people as they looked forward of the need for the blood of the Messiah to be shed once and all, for all for the forgiveness of sins. When the blood of the Messiah was shed, the way that you appropriate that blood and live in a living relationship with God is through repentance and faith. That's what circumcision pointed to. Not only the current relationship that the child had with God because he was in possession of the promises of the covenant, but the need for the child in time to embrace those promises of the covenant by faith in order that he might have what the blood of Jesus points to, namely the forgiveness of sins, the washing away of sins. But one other thing, what circumcision also pointed to was this. That if this child, in possession of the promises of the covenant, turned his back on the Lord and says, I don't care about the promises of the covenant, and if this child refuses to repent and believe, then that child is known not as a covenant keeper, but a covenant breaker, and is thrust outside the covenant community of God and away from God himself. So when that, when that foreskin was cut off from the male productive organ, it not only pointed to the shedding of blood, to the need for the, for the blood of Jesus Christ, but the cutting off of that foreskin reminded the parent and the child that if the child does not repent and believe and embrace the Messiah and all the blessings of the covenant, just as that foreskin was cut off, that child will be cut off from the covenant and a relationship with God as well. Now, I want you to think about this. For 2,000 years... The sign and the seal of a covenant relationship was, was, was given to children on the basis of faith of the parent. You have Abraham. Abraham, you know how old Abraham was when he got circumcised? Genesis 17, later on it says this. He was 99 years old. 
He had not been circumcised at that point, for God had not yet commanded it. He had a son, Ishmael, through his servant, Hagar, which the whole background of that I won't get into. Ishmael, 13 years old, was circumcised. Now God says, with the sign of circumcision, I want that applied to Abraham, not only to you and your son Ishmael, but all your children, all the male sons at eight days old. Did those eight-day-old male circumcised individuals understand the significance of the circumcision? No, but nonetheless, they were given the promises behind that covenant sign and seal. The promise being this, that if you embrace Christ Jesus, repentance and faith, and take hold of what was promised in your circumcision, you will receive the blessings of God and indeed redemption itself. Now, for 2,000 years, those promises of the covenant were applied to the children, and children were viewed in a covenant relationship with God. Now, here's the main thing we need to understand as far as Acts 2 is concerned. If children for 2,000 years were included in the covenant, you would think that a command would come from the Lord in the new covenant to exclude those children from the promises of the covenant and the, and the, and the sign of the promises. That's not what we find. In fact, what we find is the language of Peter who says to these men who need to repent and believe that this promise of the spirit and of the forgiveness of sins is not just for you, but it's also for your children and all those whom the Lord God will call. Clearly covenantal language. The Lord does not say as we get into the new covenant, your children are no longer in the covenant. Peter says, no, the promise is still for you and for your children. The promise is for you and your children. And we believe this too. The promises of the covenant are not only for we who believe, but also for our children. But there's one difference. And what's that difference? The sign of the covenant has changed. The essence or the substance of the covenant and the relation of children to their God is still there. But the form of that covenant changes from circumcision to baptism. Why is that? Because the blood of circumcision with the cutting of the foreskin pointed the parents and the child in the covenant community forward for the need of the Messiah to come to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. And once the Messiah Jesus did that, the book of Hebrews said he did it once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. Now what do we replace it with? Not the blood of circumcision, we place it with the waters of baptism. Why water? Because water is a cleansing agent that points to the cleansing of the blood of Jesus Christ that we all need for the forgiveness of our sins and a, a blessed relationship with the Lord of the covenant. And so, why do we baptize our children? The short answer is this. It's because essentially the covenant framework in which God operates has not ended at all. Just as a sign and the seal of the covenant was applied to children in the old covenant, so too the sign and the seal of the, co of the covenant is applied, applied to the children of the New Testament. And you know, um, interesting thing is, is that when you look at the number of instances of the Bible where 
where it alludes to children being involved in the sacrament of baptism, we have to confess there's no explicit command that you're going to find in the New Testament where it says, well, you know, your children are also to be baptized, although the implication is there from Acts chapter 2. But the implication is also in a number of what we call household baptisms that we find in the Bible, most of all in the book of Acts. I don't know if you're aware of this, but... Of all the instances of baptism in the New Testament, and there are 11 of them, almost half of them are household baptisms. Indeed, um, five of them are household baptisms. Where we find, we find one individual, usually the father coming to faith, we see this in the case of the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verses 30 through 34, where it says that the Philippian jailer came to faith and then... Uh, it says that his household was baptized, but it doesn't say that, he, that, that the Philippian jailer believed, he and his family believed, it just simply says that the Philippian jailer believed. It's a third person singular. And it's on the basis of the faith of that Philippian jailer, who's the head of his household, that his family received covenant baptism. And many say, and we have to, it's a bit of an argu uh, argument on silence. We have to admit that. We can't say more than what the Bible says. But many will say that there are other, that in, in the case of families at the time, it was very likely that there were very small children who could not express faith, maybe even, even infants. For the promise is not only to you who believe, but also to your children. So all these points are nicely laid out in the Heidelberg Catechism. Would you take a look at that? Take a look at, uh, would you put the Heidelberg back up there? All right, look at this, and I want to draw it to a close. Should infants, too, be baptized? The answer is not no. The answer is not maybe, but the answer is yes. And by the way, um, we have a number of Reformed confessions in our history. The other one that we have is also the Belgic Confession, which we embrace as a church, very clear on this matter as well. Yes, infants as well as adults belong to God's covenant. Not just adults, but also children are included in the covenant and the congregation. Throughout, through Christ's blood, the redemption from sin and the Holy Spirit who works faith are promised, that's the operative word, are promised to them no less than adults. Therefore, by baptism as a sign of the covenant, they must be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. So that when we have um, uh, services of baptism, and I'm not just talking uh, adults here, but also children, and in this case, many times they're infants. When the children are baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they, as those who are born to covenant-believing parents, are formally initiated into membership in the church at that point in baptism. They become members. They don't come professing members. They become baptismal members. And in that baptism, we are saying about our kids that our children are different than the children outside the church. They're different from children in, in the world. How are they different? They are brought into the privileges of the covenant. They are brought into the blessings of the covenant. And they're also brought into the obligations or the responsibility of the covenant to respond to the promises that are given to them in their baptism by doing what? in time publicly professing their faith in Jesus Christ in this context and becoming communicant members who have access to the Lord's table. Um, 
This was done, by the way, this must be, they incorporated into Christian church and distinguished from children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Covenant, which I explained to you in Genesis 17, and there are other places as well, by circumcision in place of which baptism was instituted in the New Covenant. So, as we draw to a close, I want to say three things. First, to those of us who are parents, I want us to think about who our children are. And we looked a little bit about this uh, this morning, did we not? Who are our children? Our children are those who belong to the Lord, and they bear his mark. They bear the mark of the covenant. What is the mark of the covenant? It's baptism. And their baptism is like this wedding ring. In their baptism, Lord, in a sense, as he says, I enter formally into this covenant relationship with you as a sign of that covenant marital relationship. I'm putting that ring on your finger. And you are mine. Our children, 1 Corinthians 7 verse 14, are considered to be holy. They are set apart to the Lord. And they are in possession of his covenant promises. The promise of blessing if they walk in repentance and faith before him. And also the promise of condemnation if they do not. So the question is, in light of these things, are we raising our covenant children as if they truly are in possession of the promises of God? Are we raising them like they are set apart to the Lord? And are we praying for them? And particularly, are we praying fervently for our children that in time they may respond to those promises of the Lord that are given to them in their baptism? Again, the promise of forgiveness, the promise of union with Christ, the promise of the inner working of the Holy Spirit. Really, if you think about it, is there anything more important that we can do for our children than that? Secondly, our passage not only speaks to us as parents, but also it speaks to us as children. So, children, whether you are a bit older, say 12, 13, 14 or more, or if you are younger than that, how do you view yourself? Do you view yourself as a child of the covenant, a child who is in existing relationship with the Lord, or do you just kind of think in the back of your minds, well... Yeah, in a sense, I know I have a relationship with the Lord, but I'm not going to start getting serious about that relationship until I start getting a bit older. Listen, the fact of the matter is, the Lord, in your baptism, you don't remember when that happened, but your parents do, that in that baptism, the Lord put that wedding ring on your finger, and he calls you to live in light of that covenant marriage relationship with him. That means experiencing the blessings of that relationship now, but also fulfilling the responsibilities of seeking Jesus and following after him. So with that in mind, are you repentant? And are you believing? And is it your desire even now at this age to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus? That's the call of the Lord as a baptized child. And finally this, how committed are we as a church to each other's children? I'm oftentimes aware of the fact that when children are given, uh, receive the sacrament of baptism, that we who observe have an obligation uh, to each other's children. You know, there are questions that are asked of the parents. Do you promise to raise these little ones in the fear and the admonition of the Lord and in light of the promises of the baptism? But in a sense, we all have obligation to each other's children as a covenant community. And we have a number of practices that are rooted in the covenant, like baptism, catechetical instruction, family worship, 
corporate worship on the Lord's Day, and also Christian education, both in this church and in our schools. So the question that we have to ask ourselves here is this. Are we, are com are we committed to maintaining and growing these things here at, here at Pathway? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that, and, and you know, you read things online about this. I remember reading one article that said that by the time, and I think this is more in, in light of evangelical circles, because they're having a hard time with this, but, but many kids are abdicating from the faith because of the kind of instruction that they are receiving in a university context. In fact, it's said in one report that 75% of those who grow up in the church end up abandoning it in this day and age in our Western culture just because of the influences of the world that they come under. So the question is, in light of this, are we committed to our children to bring them to worship, to have family devotions together, to give them a Christian education, whereby the promises of the covenant are not only underscored to them, but their calling is to embrace these promises for themselves, to walk with the Lord, and then pass on the baton of faith to subsequent generations. So, covenant baptism. This is more than just um, a doctrine that we are to understand, but it's a way of life. And may God help us to see its beauty and its blessings but also its obligation. Heavenly Father, as we come to you now, Lord, very thankful, Lord, for this opportunity we have. It's a warm Sunday, Lord. It's, it's kind of hard for us somewhat to concentrate on the things before us, especially uh, a subject that can be as involved as covenant baptism. So, Lord, we pray that you bless the word to our hearts and that you grant us a proper response to it and maybe a blessed discussion as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.